So we're starting a new series right now called What's the Difference? And as we look at this series, we're going to be taking a look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll define that, explain that here more in a minute, and comparing it to other belief systems around the world. And I just kind of want to set a tone uh, for this conversation. Uh, what we're going to be doing is celebrating and examining and drilling down on what the Bible teaches and what is the central core of Christianity and kind of how Grace Church or Orthodox Christianity would kind of embrace that. What we're not going to be doing is bashing other faiths and other religious systems. It's just kind of not the way that we roll here. I grew up in a church that every time we talked about the difference between different belief systems, uh, it was kind of like an Ohio State-Michigan rivalry kind of a sermon, you know, where you would lay into them. And what happened is you went all amped up about why they're wrong, and you never really knew why the Bible was right. Like, that was never the point. And so we kind of want to do the opposite of that. We want to stare at the original so intensely and be grounded and anchored in that so intensely that when something false or counterfeit comes along, kind of our truth detectors go off, alarm bells will go off, and we would, we would recognize that so that we would stay anchored in our faith and so that we can also help other people to see uh, the difference between the two things. So that's gonna be the way that we approach it. Here at Grace, we try to do everything with gentleness and respect. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And so we can uh, uh, unapologetically believe in what the Bible teaches us without being jerks about uh, toward people who don't agree with us. But it is important that we know the difference. It's important for us, it's important for them, uh, and it's important uh, really for the cause of Christ and the gospel that we would proclaim. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. If you are of a different faith system, invite you to be a part of the conversation, to hear it, and uh, to think it through with us. Welcome you to be in on that. And uh, for the rest of us, I want to, uh, to drill down on the original and see what God has to say, kind of where he draws the lines, the hills that he would tell us to die on, and uh, kind of get a, an understanding of that between the true gospel and what the what the Bible would call a false, a false gospel or a false religion, okay? So let's look at it. Grab your Bibles. If you got them, go to Galatians chapter one. That's where we're gonna camp here for a chunk of the summer is in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 810 in those Bibles. And if you uh, wanna use your phone or an electronic device, the, the version app is the app that we use. Go out, hit live event, you'll find Grace Church, and uh, you can join us right there. Galatians chapter one. Uh, Galatians, let me just set it up a little bit. Galatians is a book of the Bible written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. So the Bible is basically broken into two parts. The first part's called the Old Testament. That's like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all that kind of stuff is in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is where you're introduced to Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then after Jesus came the apostles. And the apostles were guys that God gave authority to speak on his behalf. So we call this the inspiration of scripture. And the apostle Paul was one of those main apostles. The apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament for us. And he's been given special permission by God to do that led by the Holy Spirit, and so we read those words as the words of God. But one of the things that Paul did 
was he kind of fleshed out a lot of what Jesus said. He, he showed us how to put more and more skin on it, and then he showed us how to do that, especially in the context of the church, which is a spiritual entity that Jesus created. So the church was not made up by human beings. It wasn't founded by the Pope, those kind of things. This, the church was founded by Jesus, and we are a spiritual entity. We're not a social entity. And so when Paul speaks on God's behalf, he speaks to the church a lot. He says, this is the way the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus should kind of shake out in your everyday life. So the book of Galatians is a letter written by Paul for the words of God to a church in a place called Galatia, right? And Paul has gone there before and he has proclaimed the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. So he's proclaimed the gospel of Jesus or the good news of Jesus. They've received that good news and now they're starting to drift away from it. And this is where you pick the letter up in chapter one, verse one of Galatians. Paul says this, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and, the God, and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the church in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the evil, the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. That's the Bible's way of saying, hi, it's Paul. Hi, guys. They're in Galatia. And then he gets into what he's writing about, and he gets real strong, real fast. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be cursed under God. As we already have said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that which you accepted, let them be cursed by God. Paul comes out to the church of Galatia and says, hey, listen, I came and I taught you the true gospel, the true good news of Jesus. You accepted that. I went away for like a little bit and you let people into your presence and started to listen to them teach a false gospel or a counterfeit religion. There's several ways the Bible would title that but something different than what we taught you at first. And I'm astonished at how quickly you accepted that. And then he pushes back in and he says, there is no other gospel. There is what Jesus proclaimed and there is only what Jesus proclaimed and that's the line in the sand. That's the hill that we die in. The gospel is the core of everything. There is no other gospel. I don't care what they say. I, I don't care if we came back and said we're, we're adding to the gospel. I don't care if an angel showed up and told you. If anybody does that, they're gonna be cursed by God because the gospel, the true gospel, is the foundation of everything. And it's not to be added to, subtracted from, or deviated from in any way. And Paul's writing these folks, he's frustrated. He's saying, I, I'm astonished, I'm flabbergasted, I'm blown away, I can't believe it 
that you guys so quickly drifted into this false gospel because the true gospel is what everything is rooted on, okay? Now, what is the true gospel? Let, let's start there and let me show this to you and define it and then we'll, we'll move and start talking about a false gospel a little bit. So what is the true gospel? Remember, the gospel, it just means good news. So what is the true good news? What is the core that Paul is so upset that they're deviating from? Well, let me show it to you. Flip to the right in your Bibles, four or five pages to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is the same deal, the book of Galatians. So Paul is writing Ephesians 2. He's writing Ephesians also, and he's writing it to a church. And remember, he's defining, he's kind of helping us put skin on the teachings of Jesus. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you're going to find kind of the, one of the most concise places in all Scripture where the gospel is kind of laid out blow by blow. All right, so Paul defines it here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here is the gospel in a, in a nutshell, so to say. Here it is. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show us his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And this is a place, one of the best places in the whole Bible to see the gospel spelled out kind of blow by blow. And Paul lays that out and he would say, this is the truth, it is the good news of Jesus. I put it in your notes and I just paraphrased it a little bit to make it make more uh, kind of clarity for it. Here it is, the true gospel is this, the true gospel is that I am a sinner, Christ is the only Savior, my salvation is received because of God's favor as a free gift when I humble myself and repent of my sins and ask God for forgiveness. That's the gospel. It's me agreeing with what God says about me and me agreeing with what God says about himself. I am a sinner. I am not a good person. I do not have a good heart. The Bible would say the opposite, that in my heart of hearts, I'm actually a wicked person. By my very nature, I'm an object of God's wrath. By nature, I'm a sinner, right? Your mama never taught you to lie. She taught you to tell the truth. Your mama never taught you to be, to be mean. She taught you to be nice. Sin is what comes by my nature, and that sin causes me to be spiritually dead. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? So my sin, my transgressions, 
kill me spiritually and separate me from God. That's the bad news. That's what I have to accept about myself. Then there is good news. The good news is that God recognizes that in me and he comes to rescue me. Jesus steps out of heaven, he lives on earth, he lives a perfect life, he never sins, he willingly lays his life down by his own power, he raises his life up again, and he defeats sin and death, that's the good news. And then the question becomes this, if Jesus is the source of life and I'm dead, how do I get that source of life? How do I receive it? And Paul comes in and he says, it's simple, it's by grace that you're saved. Grace means God's unmerited favor. In other words, you're saved because God chose to love you and save you. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. This is not by works. It's nothing that you're doing. It's not by works so that you can't boast about it. You're not doing anything to earn or purchase your salvation. It's what God is giving to you. And when you recognize that you're a sinner and agree with God and you recognize that Jesus is the only God and you agree with that and you ask for the forgiveness of your sin and you repent of it, which just means turn from it, then God, the Bible says, is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's the gospel, that's the good news. The good news is you're a sinner, the good news is there's a a savior, and the good news is that the, the gift of salvation has been purchased and provided and will be given freely when asked for it. And Paul back in Galatians says, that's what you guys accepted. That's the gospel. And there is no other gospel. And nobody should add to that gospel. I had a friend one time, he said the gospel is Jesus only. Jesus plus nothing. So it's not Jesus plus church, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus communion, Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus a big check. Jesus plus nothing. God loves you, has chosen to love you, and offers a free gift of salvation. All you have to do is receive it. And Paul says, I'm astonished that you would add to that. I'm astonished that you would take away from that. That's the line that God draws. There is the gospel, and that is the hill that we would die on as a church because everything boils down to the gospel. It's the foundation. It's the core of it all, right? In fact, the Bible is so clear about this and so strong about it that the Bible says if anybody tries to add to this or subtract from it, they're going to be under God's curse and people should recognize what's happening. If somebody adds to Jesus or takes away from Jesus, and get away from them. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. The Bible would teach that as a follower of Jesus, I'm to know the gospel. I'm to study the original. And if anybody puts in an obstacle, if anybody makes it more difficult, if anybody complicates it, They are to be recognized as a false teacher, a counterfeit gospel, a false religion, and you are to move away from them, have nothing to do with them because they're causing confusion and they're wanting to put a barrier between man and God. So big deal, like being under God's curse is not a place that you want to be, right? Big, big deal, and it's because the gospel is central to everything. So...
With that foundation, the question then becomes, how do I recognize then a false religion? How do I recognize a false gospel? And, and then we'll talk a little bit about how we're to interact with it. So I wanna give you this weekend, as we kind of kick off the series, a broad overview of how to recognize a false gospel. And when you see these things that we're gonna point out, your truth detector should go off. A little alarm should go off in your mind and your heart. And you should look and say, now wait a minute, that's Jesus plus something else, or that's Jesus minus something. You know, it's not all Jesus, it's Jesus and these other things. How do I know, how do I recognize, and let me give you these, these things, okay? So here they are, they're in your notes, and we can uh, walk along as we have this conversation. When we're talking about the differences between the true gospel and a false religion, what are the characteristics of each of these things? We'll compare and contrast a little bit. Here's the first one. A false religion, a false religion is going to teach salvation through effort. A false religion is always gonna teach salvation through effort, through your effort. In other words, to get to heaven and to have a relationship with God, a false religion is always gonna say, yeah, you gotta believe in Jesus, or you gotta believe in God, or you gotta believe in a higher power, and then you gotta do these things too. And if you believe in Jesus or the Bible or higher power and you get baptized or and you take communion or and you go to confession or and you go on a missionary journey or and you clean your life up and and you quit smoking, drinking, chewing, and date girls who do and chair for Michigan. Right? And it's Jesus plus. And a false religion at its core is always gonna have you earning your salvation. If you do these things and you work really, really hard and you're really, really sincere and you take a vow of poverty, whatever, then maybe you'll get to heaven and at its very core, it violates Ephesians chapter two because it's not by grace that you're saved, it's by works that you're saved and you've got to do these things in order to be made right with God and get to heaven. Now the true gospel at its core is always gonna teach the opposite. The true gospel at its core is always gonna say this. The true gospel teaches that salvation is a free gift purchased by Christ's efforts. The true gospel is gonna teach that salvation is a free gift purchased by Christ's efforts. In other words, I receive my salvation not because of what I have done or not done, I receive my salvation because what Christ has done for me. It's not me getting to God, it's God coming to me. It's not us being super duper religious and somehow we elevate ourselves to God, it's Jesus humbling himself as a man and coming to us, living here, laying his life down for you and I. And at its very core, the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel is always gonna be anchored in that. The false gospel is always gonna say, you better get your act together and get yourself right with God. And the true gospel is always gonna say, because you can't get your act together, God came to you. One is always gonna be about your effort, and the other is gonna be about God's effort to reach you, okay? So anchor that down as a beginning point. And then you start to flush it out a little bit. When, when you move forward from there, you start to see how this breaks down a little bit and you start to get an, an idea 
of where those alarm bells are gonna, gonna go from, okay? So here's the second principle. Because a false gospel or a false religion is all about your effort, that false gospel or false religion is always gonna produce pride or despair. That false gospel is always gonna produce pride or despair because it's about my effort. My effort is gonna either make me self-righteous or desperately insecure. And that's gonna be the fruit of a false gospel. Let's just talk about this for a minute. In order for me, if, if I accept the premise that I have to work my way to God, in order for me to accomplish those things, I have to dumb down my relationship with God into irrelevant activities so that I can accomplish them. In order for me to earn my relationship with God, I have to dumb down my relationship with God into irrelevant activities so that I can accomplish them, All right? Now let me give you an example of this. I grew up in a church where I was taught that you, you prove your love to God, All right? In other words, you earn your way to God. So because that's what you had to do, you had to earn your way to God, you had to dumb that down to a list of things that you could actually do. So we weren't allowed to smoke, we weren't allowed to drink any alcohol. Uh, if you were a man, you couldn't have your hair touch your ears or your collar. Uh, if you were a woman, you had to wear a dress or a skirt unless you were doing an athletic activity. And then you could wear culottes if you wanted to, right? Uh, you couldn't go to the drive-in theater because if you went to the drive-in theater, you would get pregnant and do crack cocaine kind of thing. So our church had a, a drive-in theater right behind it. So the pastor erected a 20-foot privacy fence so that if you went out the back door after church, you wouldn't accidentally go to hell. You know, and so there was all these behavioral activities, but if you could accomplish these things, you were basically taught that you proved that you love God and you would get to go to heaven. So as a teenager, I'm sitting here in this church and I'm hearing the list, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and go to church and Wednesday night and Sunday night and do these things. And I do the math pretty quickly because I can think like most teenagers can. And I realize that your activity level, what you say it takes to get to God, is irrelevant to me. Really? Not going to a drive-in keeps me in or out of heaven? Really? Not dancing? David danced. He was naked when he did it, right? Really? It keeps me... So what happens is a group of people can keep a list. They become very self-righteous about that list. We are the non-dancers. We are the non-drinkers. We only listen to Christian music, right? They become very self-righteous and the people that they become self-righteous about and judgmental over look at them usually correctly and say, that's dumb, that's irrelevant. And especially if you read the Bible, you look and say, well, it's not even in the book. And generations walk away from the gospel because they're being taught a false gospel by prideful people who are participating in irrelevant actions. See how that works? But they accomplish their list. Now the other side of the false gospel, it's either gonna produce pride or despair. The other side of the false gospel is a desperate insecurity. 
Because if you don't dumb the gospel down, your ticket to heaven, if you don't dumb it down into irrelevant activities, what happens is you kind of dumb it up, right? So you raise it into these ambiguous, non-definable things that you never know if you've achieved or not. So to get to heaven, you have to live a holy life. Well, what's that supposed to mean? Go to church? Don't do these things? Be a, should I go Amish? What, what am I supposed to do? Be a, am I supposed to be a nun or a priest or a monk? Or what, what does holy life mean? To get to heaven, good people go to heaven. Well, what's good mean? Good means better than you. But how do, I, how do I know when I'm good enough? What's it mean? How do I, where do I find security? To go to heaven, you have to be a tolerant person. Tolerant of what? Because in order to be tolerant, I have to be intolerant, right? If I say something's okay, by very logic, I'm saying that other things aren't. So how do I know I pick the right things? How do you know you're going to heaven? And the outcome of that mindset is, well, I mean, you, you kind of hope it works out in the end. Really? Hey, all the belief in the church and the book and the Bible and, and, and we, we're left with we kind of hope it works out in the end? And a false religion is always built off of your effort. And your effort is either going to produce a self-righteousness because you keep an irrelevant list or it's going to produce an insecurity because you never know if you've arrived. And that's always going to be the outcome of the fruit of a false gospel or false religion or false teaching. Now, the true gospel is going to be very, very different. The true gospel is going to produce humility and confidence. Humility and confidence, and let's just follow the line of thinking here for a minute. The true gospel is based on the premise that it's not about my effort, it's about God's effort for me. It's Christ's effort, what he did for me, he came for me. And you don't have to be much of a thinking person to realize that, wait a minute, when the Bible says I'm a sinner, I kinda know that I am. I lie, I've stole, I cheated, I think lustful thoughts, I'm jealous, right? That's like five of the 10 commandments right there right? I'm wicked. I know about my thought life. I know about my self-righteousness. I know about my own narcissism. Right? We, don't, we don't have to argue with ourselves too much to know that we're not a good person. I'm a wicked person and God loves me? Yeah. I'm shaking my fist at God in rebellion. I'm an enemy of God in my heart, the Bible says, when I'm outside of Christ. And as I'm doing that, Christ stepped out of heaven and came down for me. God knows my name. God knows my life. God loves me. Yeah. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, knowing how full of junk my heart and mind is. Yep. Why? Because he decided to. It's by grace that you're saved. Wow, that's humbling. Somebody else laid their life down for me. Yeah, it's humbling. And it gives confidence. How can that be? 
because salvation is not found through me, it's found through Christ. And Christ can draw the lines and make the definitions because he's a provider of salvation. So the Bible says things like this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you know it works out at the end? Because you've been saved by grace and Jesus paid the price and he is the one that God looks at, not you. So he sanctified you and justified you. So there's, you're not under condemnation anymore because of what Christ did for you. It works out fine in the end. Really? Yeah. Jesus says things like this. I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and you're going to come be with me. If I'm good enough, no, you can't be good enough. It's because I love you so much. I'm going to make that happen. You know what I'm going to do? When you accept me as your Savior, I'm going to put a deposit down on heaven for you. Your deposit's called the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna give that for you too. So when you get there, just check in, right? I'm with Jesus, I got the deposit, of Holy Spirit. I think Jesus picked up the rest of the tab. The true gospel is about humility. It's not what I've done for God, it's what God's done for me. And confidence, the true gospel, what Jesus teaches, I'm not worried about whether I'm gonna to go to heaven or not. I, I, I would look at folks and it's fascinating when I've been with believers. I remember talking to my dad when he was dying. I said, Dad, he, I asked him, I said, are you scared? He goes, nope, not at all. This was an hour before he died. You scared? No. He had no fear, no insecurity. Why? Because he had the gospel. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what Christ had done for him. He wasn't worrying about measuring up because he knew that Christ was the measuring stick, see? And he knew that heaven was gonna be open to him. The true gospel produces humility and confidence. I love this old song. A guy named Isaac Watts wrote this year, like a billion years ago. But I love the words, listen to this, great song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose such rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I don't give my life to Jesus trying to buy my way into heaven. I give my life to Jesus because I'm blown away by the truth that he gave his life for me. The gospel produces humility and confidence that I can live in. Any gospel that the product is pride or despair, it's a false gospel. Any gospel that the product is, or the baseline is you earn it, your effort maybe gets you, is a false gospel. The true gospel is Christ's effort and the true fruit of that is humility and confidence. Here's the third thing, the last one we'll look at here. Remember, we're back there at the beginning. The premise is I work. 
The fruit is pride and despair. And the relationship with God is fear and guilt. A false gospel, a false religion is motivated by fear and guilt. It's this mindset. God either will or won't for me. God either will or won't for me, fear and guilt. If I don't do this, God will do this to me. If I don't do this, God won't do this for me. It's a false relationship with God where we look at God and say God is an angry God that has to be appeased and if something negative happens in my life, it's because I didn't appease God correctly. The false gospel also would teach that if something positive happens in my life, it's because I did please God correctly. Both of those are false gospel, right? I skipped church this weekend. Great, now my battery's dead, right? I gave 50 bucks this weekend. I got a new boat, right? Both of that's a false gospel. It's the idea that because my relationship with God is predicated on my behavior, I can control God's responses to me. And if I do this, God will do this. If I don't do this, then God won't do this. Because I did this, this happened in my life. Because I did this, this happened in my life. God will or won't based on my behavior. And it's a gospel, it's a relationship that's founded in fear and guilt. And when we have a false view of God and we look and say, well, I didn't put enough effort in, therefore God, it triggered this in God, is a false gospel. For instance, if I see God as an inspecting God, and many of us do this, that God is watching, always watching, right? God God is looking at us and he's waiting for you to mess up to get you and inspecting God. I better do this, this, or this or God's gonna get me. That's a false view of God. It's predicated in a false gospel, right? If I view God as a demanding God, you better, you better go to church, you better get some money, you better do a communion, you better go to confession, you better wear these clothes, you better get a haircut, or God's gonna be honked off at you, right? God's a demanding God. Or God's a distant God. God's a God that you keep at bay, you appease him. The God of the cathedral, the God of the mosque, the God of religion. I, do, I pray three times a day, I put this fruit in front of this idol, I do these things, I do that, and I keep God at bay because he's always on the verge of wiping me out. See? And that view of God is rooted in a false gospel that's attached to my works. I do these things, then God does these things, right? The true gospel says it's not your effort, it's God's effort. So the true gospel does not produce a relationship that's motivated by fear and guilt. The true gospel produces a relationship that's motivated by love. God's love for me and my love for him. First John four, in this the love of God has been made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. First John three, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. God is not out to get you. He would have got you by now. 
God is determined to love you. A God that's looking for an excuse to ruin your life, you have given him plenty. The first time you said no to your mama, you had a lightning bolt coming. That's not God's love, it's not his pattern, it's not his habit, it's not his illustration. He sent his son, Christ laid his life down for you. So my response to God, I don't, I don't give my money to God because I'm afraid of God. I give my money to God because I recognize that God gave all my money to me. I love him. I want to be a part of what he's doing. I don't, here it is, who cares? Thank you, right? I don't go to church because I'm afraid of God. I go to church because the Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. I want to participate in his family, right? That my best friends in the world, I also love their families. I love being with the family of God. I don't do it out of guilt because I'm afraid my car won't start. See how that works? All the good deeds and all the activity and all the investment is motivated by love, and that's God's motive toward me as well. And I believe the gospel, that it's Christ's effort, what he did for me, that gives me humility, humbles me, and it gives me confidence. I'm not, I'm not worried whether I'm gonna go to heaven or not. I'm, I'm in, it's, it's bank for me. I got a deposit laid down, right? And the response from me is love for God because of God's great love for me. The high calling of the human being is not to earn or prove my salvation. The great high calling of humanity is to receive the salvation that's been purchased and provided for us. Now you go back to Galatians chapter one, look at it, and all of a sudden, Paul's astonishment starts to make a lot more sense, doesn't it? When, when he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting this gospel, he's looking and saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> this, God, this is the core thing. It's not your effort, it's God's effort. It's, it, it's not insecurity and despair. It's confidence and humility. It's not guilt and fear and shame. It, it's love. That's everything. If you don't have that down, then nothing else will make sense. So we do not budge on this. This is the line that Jesus drew. You come to this gospel, you're in. You refuse this gospel, you're out. It's literally the line that he drew. It's the hill that the church is to die on. This gospel is what we proclaim. It's what we live for. It's what our great commission is. It's what motivates our great commandment. It's everything. And Paul here looks at the early church and he says, no, no, I'm, I, you'll, hear, you'll feel me coming after you on this. And Jesus, by the way, does the same thing with false teachers. Many of the apostles do the same thing. They'll come down to that baseline, no, we will not compre- uh, co- compromise on the gospel. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what the Bible would teach, right? So when you're looking at other faiths and you're looking at other belief systems and other worldviews, it, it, where it gets confusing is this. Lots of faiths do what Christianity does. Did you know that? Lots of faiths baptize people. That's not unique to Christianity. Uh, Christianity is really the only one that does communion. 
So that would be very unique to us. Almost all faiths gather and hear teaching and worship together. Every faith prays in some way. Every faith has good deeds, maybe their version of good deeds, but has good deeds attached to it. None of that is unique to Christianity. So how do do we know we would be staring at a counterfeit? Well, you know by staring at the real thing. And where you're gonna find the counterfeit teaching is in this place. You, you should ask these two questions, okay? Here they are, I put them in your notes. The two questions that expose the counterfeit teaching are this. How do I receive salvation and what relationship does that produce with God? How do I go to heaven and what relationship does that produce with God? And if salvation is received by any other means than by grace through faith provided by Jesus Christ, if anything is added to that or taken away from that, it's a false gospel. You're always gonna find it right there in that question. You believe in Jesus? Yeah. You believe in the Bible? Yeah. How do you get to heaven? Well, you take the Bible and then you get baptized a bunch of times and you go on this journey and then you, well, you do this. I mean, we're really with Jesus, but we also believe this guy and this other book and then you pray these three things and see, there it is. It's always gonna be right there. How do you receive salvation? If it's anything else by Christ By grace through faith, it's a false gospel. And what relationship does that produce with God? If it's any other relationship than a loving God embracing his people as brothers and friends and co-heirs, these are all words of Jesus, then it's a false relationship. So if I do these things, what relationship do I get? Well, then, then maybe you get to stand before God and maybe you make it, right? You, you put God at bay and he won't get you for a while. No, 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 no. That's not the relationship Christ wanted. It's not the relationship that's produced to the gospel. It's not what he came to give us, right? So when you see those, your alarm bells go off. And they go off for you, they go off for the people that you love, and we want to show them and us the true gospel. Now, how do you do this? This is a big deal, and this is a big deal here, especially at Grace Church. We do all of this with gentleness and respect. That's what the Bible says. Paul, same guy who wrote this stuff, wrote that. Gentleness and respect. I can disagree with you, and I can disagree with you vehemently, and I don't have to be a jerk about it. So we persuade, we convince, we're ambassadors, we're ministers of reconciliation. All those are Bible words. So when I see something I disagree with, it's not Ohio State versus Michigan. We're gonna kill you this year. No, 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 right? It is gentleness and respect because we would believe, we do believe that people's very souls are at stake. So that's a sober conversation. That's not a competitive one. And we're gonna engage that with a respectful way, in a gentle way, in a grown-up way. And we're gonna seek to show them what God says to be true, right? And how we respond to the truth of the gospel. Now, in all of that as a foundation, I wanna say this. I know that most of you are dying for me to say something about this gay marriage thing, right? That's why we showed up at church this weekend. I know how it works, right? I've been reading Facebook. So let me, in light of everything I just said, I'll give you a statement, right? Here's Grace Church's position 
on gay marriage being legalized on Friday. Here it is, ready? Gay marriage being legalized Friday changes nothing for Grace Church. Zip. The same thing that we were called to do on Thursday, the same gospel we were, pro- were charged to proclaim on Thursday, the same sinners that we were called to love on Thursday is the exact same things that we're called to do on Friday. This church's calling, Grace Church's calling, has never been to save a culture. The calling of the church is to build the kingdom of Christ. And building that kingdom in a culture that rejects Christ and his word is nothing new. It's where the church always lives. And it's where the church has always lived in North America, right? Materialism is a blatant sin in the Bible. Infanticide, abortion, is a blatant sin in the Bible. Pornography is a blatant sin in the Bible. Adultery is a blatant sin in the Bible. Divorce is something that the Bible says God specifically hates. All sexual immorality is a blatant sin in the Bible, and all of those things have been legal for a long, long time in our country. Gay marriage is one more legalized act of rebellion or sin against God. And Grace Church is not gonna be pulled off of the course of what we're called to do because another law in our country no longer reflects God's desire or will. Grace Church will continue to stand on the word of God and the calling of Christ regardless of the laws of the land, just like we always have. Because our great commandment has nothing to do with the Constitution and it has nothing to do with what's legal or illegal. Loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves comes from God. And it has been the historical position of Grace Church to live on that. It has been the present practice of Grace Church to live on that. And it will be the future practice of Grace Church to live on that. And that position of God's word and Christ's gospel and the great commandment is going to be where grace always is going to stand. That's never going to change, at least not on my watch. Nothing's shifted for us at all. The Bible is crystal clear, Romans chapter 1, that God will turn individuals and even nations over to their sin. God will let people have what they want. And that is not an act of agreement, it's an act of judgment. Because it allows them to further and further their heart from God. People can do it, families can do it, and nations can do it. And that's what ours has done and continues to do. And as that happens, the church, the people of God, are to stand ready to serve as a beacon of life and hope and truth and we're seeking to rescue all those who search for a savior. So this is the position of Grace Church. It's always been the position of Grace Church. And the statement we make is the statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we proclaim. That is what we've set out to take to the corners of the earth. 
That is what we will never apologize for or back off of because that's the line that God draws that no one is to be crossing. And how do you reject that gospel? What sin or position that you choose to harden your heart? That's gonna vary a thousand different ways. It's never our concern. Our concern is the proclamation of that gospel and our willingness to engage the people God loves with the truth that God has given, right? But guys, this is what we do. This is what the church has always done. The darkest hours in history are always the brightest moments for the church. That's where the light shines. This is nothing new. When the church was birthed at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem thousands of years ago, it was birthed in a culture that opposes God, and we live in one and a half for a long, long time. And Jesus is still king, and God is still in control, and I read the book just the other day, it all works out, and we wind up victorious in the end, right? Okay? So listen, come on. Find your courage. Find your courage. There's nothing to apologize for. There's nothing we're gonna backtrack on. There's no ways that we change. We've never done that. We've never done that. And one more law isn't gonna cause that to affect us in a different way. Lost people are lost. And they need the love and the hope of Jesus. And that's why the church is here. That's why we don't go to heaven the minute we say I do to God. We're here to proclaim that truth and to shed that light and we've done it and we're doing it and we're gonna keep on doing it no matter what happens around us, okay? The gospel of Jesus, it will not be muted and I would argue the darker the culture, the louder the gospel of Jesus becomes, okay? So we're gonna view it that way and we're gonna approach it that way and that's the position of Grace Church. There you go. Now, the question becomes personal, okay? So we can be all caught up in people who don't love Jesus not loving Jesus. That's normal. The question of the gospel is personal. And it's fascinating, when Jesus called people to himself, sometimes he would do that in kind of an emotional way. He would get real down deep into somebody's life and like the woman at the well and point out her adultery and say don't sin anymore, right? And then sometimes he would do that in a very clinical way. He would look at somebody and say you're a whitewashed tomb. You're a false teacher. You need to repent. And so this weekend is kind of a clinical conversation a little bit. And it becomes just kind of a clear line that you have to decide which side you stand on. Will you and have you accepted the truth that you're a sinner? Will you or have you accepted the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him? And have you received the free gift of salvation? If you've never done that, I encourage you and invite you to do that today, right? It's a cognitive decision. And from your heart to God's heart, you pray and you agree with him. You confess your sins to him and he will faithfully and justly forgive you and cleanse you. And if you've never accepted Christ, 
that way, if you never accepted the gospel of Jesus, I encourage you to do that. If you are a follower of Jesus, I encourage you not to add to the gospel. It's this fascinating other little passage that Paul wrote. Let me read it to you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says this, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ready? And that's what some of you were. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It always astonishes me that in a moment of clarity we will recognize that we can't earn our way to God and we will receive the salvation of God because we are the idolater, we're the adulterer, we're the sexually immoral, we're the homosexual offender. We're, the, we're on that list and we recognize that we need a savior and we receive Christ and we're washed and we're sanctified and we're justified by Christ alone, by grace you're saved through faith. And then here's the hard part, and I wanna confess I do it too. What happens is I take the gospel and then I look at lost people and I'll start to think, well if you'd start following Jesus, you should clean your life up. You should get your morality together. You should quit living a gay lifestyle. You should agree with me. And I, almost without realizing it, will start to add to the gospel of Christ. And I'll engage people's behavior long before I engage their heart. So the question becomes, have you received the gospel? And then the second question is, are you still living on the simple gospel? Is that what we proclaim? It's not political agreement. It's not legal agreement. It's not moral agreement. It's agreement on who Christ is and who we are. And from there, the Holy Spirit of God takes it. So as a follower of Jesus, the gospel that I live and proclaim and I want to give to other people I'm not looking to change their behavior, I'm looking to introduce them to their God. And God will affect their behavior. God will meet them wherever they're at. So as a follower of Jesus, I accept the gospel and then I stay with the gospel. I proclaim the gospel, right? And that's the, the statement that's broadcast for my life, right? All right, I'm gonna ask the band to come up as they settle in, why don't we pray? Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we love you. And Lord, it's hard and it's painful to watch folks who don't. Uh, as a nation, a neighbor, a friend, a family member of God, because we know that the more we engage in sin and the further we walk away from you, the more pain and destruction is gonna come into our life.
The wages of sin is death. The path of sin is destructive. And we grieve for people who celebrate that. God, our big cry is that you would reach them. And our great commitment is to be the ambassador and the minister of reconciliation and to really do what you've called us to do. Father, I pray for all those who are here who have not yet embraced your gospel. Father, I pray that they would hear and respond to the good news, that there is a Savior who loves and provided a way of escape, and the gift of salvation is free. And God, for those of us who are followers of you, I pray that as our culture crumbles, our passion for the lost increases, and we see the heart and the soul of mankind, and we're broken by it, motivated to love by it as you were for us, that we would love the way we've been loved. Guide us in that way. Encourage us, embolden us, and thank you, God, that you are the cornerstone, you're the rock, you're the anchor, and you never change. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.